You're listening to Girls in Glory. Girls in Glory is a podcast giving you a 360-degree view of women's sport. This podcast will bring you the stories from the best female athletes, as well as giving you access to the support staff that help these women perform at their peak. You'll also hear from the media personalities who've been championing the women's game and the administrators and key decision makers who have been kicking the women's sport movement forward. I'm your host, Holly Ferling. I'm a cricketer, a journalist and a lover of all things women's sport. Our next guest and off-field game changer is Eliza Freeney, a woman who works tirelessly in the background to get our Australian women's cricket team in peak condition. Eliza is a dietitian at Cricket Australia, and not only does she work with our top women, she works along the pathway developing young male and female cricketers. Eliza talks through what it's like to work with athletes at the top of their game, while also managing the challenges cricket throws at you. International travel to subcontinent countries, heat, and varying workload and team roles. Let's get into it. Well, Eliza, welcome to the Girls and Glory podcast. I love it. Girls and Glory. Very <laughs> yeah, that's nice. That's it. That's it. So you're the dietitian for Cricket Australia, particularly with the girls. Um, how did you get to your role within Cricket Australia? What's been your journey? Um, my journey um, began, began at uni um, with an undergrad in applied science and then went on to do my master's in dietetics. Um, uh, was pretty active throughout my whole life. I've always loved, always loved sport. Um, so it was a bit of a natural progression um, into sports dietetics. Um, so early on, I had the opportunity to complete an internship with the New South Wales Waratahs, um, which flowed on to um, some work with the New South Wales Waratahs, so in rugby union. Um, I've also worked a little bit across rugby league, basketball, lots of individual sports like golf, um, triathlon, for example, some individual rowers. Um, also worked in private practice when I lived in Sydney. Um and three and a half years ago now, um, was fortunate enough to start my work with Cricket Australia, uh, predominantly with the women's program and the pathway programs. So that's been a journey of sort of nearly um, eight or nine years, I think now. So it's been good fun. And I guess across that period, you would have had a, you would have come to your own, I guess, philosophy around nutrition and, and performance. What's your, I guess, general idea of, of how much nutrition can actually influence what happens on the field? Um, it's if I, if I go back to the philosophy component, um, my philosophy, like a lot of sports dietitians, is a food-first approach, um, but then underpinned by the individual's needs. Um, so no two people are going to be the same. Um, even with the one individual, they can have different needs depending on uh, the scenarios that they might face, for example, in a cricket situation in a match. Um, so the nutrition impact can be um, anywhere from uh, minor to, to quite significant, depending on the on the environmental conditions, um, the individual's needs, um, and a number of other different competing factors. And do you think within sport, um, I guess because you've got a number of different people that are really, uh, I guess, thinking about performance and, and how they can gain that extra 1%, mm-hmm. do you think there's a lot of myths or misconceptions around athletes um, around that space and what they think um, might be helping their body versus what isn't. Have you had to, I guess, combat a a bit of that across your time across all the different sports? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think nutrition is a bit of a minefield when it comes to misinformation. There's, There's a lot of 
information out there, whether or not it's all evidence-based and valid is, is um, a different story. So there's a lot of myth-busting in my role. Um, and there's also a lot of uh, accompanying athletes on their journey to work out what their individual nutrition requirements are. Um, and that comes with um, making mistakes, um, exploring different um, strategies for their nutrition, either liking it or not liking it. And that happens um, sort of, I guess, concurrently with their development as an athlete as well. Um, it, it plays a big role um, early on in an athlete's career. Um, and as they get older, they become a little bit more attuned to to what their own individual needs are um, with a lot of myth busting and, and education along the way. Because what sort of education programs have you implemented around Cricket Australia to allow those athletes to upskill themselves in, in their own dietary needs? Um, yeah, well, we have, um, I think we've got about 11 dietitians now uh, um, across all of our state associations and Cricket Australia. Um, so we've got uh, anywhere from in our pathway, which we, we might see athletes at, say, 15 years of age, um, through our NPS program, which is sort of 19 to 21. Uh, they have quite extensive um, education programs around nutrition. So that'll include anything from lifestyle nutrition. So so just generally speaking, um, how do you write a shopping list? How do you go about doing your grocery shopping? What what are some good pantry staples? Um, how do you understand your sort of baseline requirements um, just for life um, as opposed to specifically for cricket? And then as athletes um, progress through our pathway, they become um, – they, they undertake education um, that's more individualised to their performance um, to layer atop of their, their lifestyle nutrition uh, we have individual nutrition consultation with the athletes. So depending on the program and where you're at in your development, um, whether in your, a state program or a national program, depends on how much access you have to a sports dietitian. Um, but generally speaking, those individual consultations will be made up of um, education based on what the, the athlete needs at that point in time. Um, it'll look at possibly body composition measures. Um, it might be discussing... Um, um, results from a blood test or um, injury nutrition. So there's yeah lots of different layers to their, their education. You mentioned some of the, the youth squads and cricket seems to be a sport where kids debut young mm-hmm. um, and they go straight into the system. Yeah. And a lot of them haven't actually been away from home or, or anything like that. Would you say that one of the, I guess, key things missing from these athletes is actually the ability to, like you said, the the shopping list and actually preparing their own meals versus having mum prepare them at home? Yeah, there's definitely a big jump um, for, for, for them that um, we do try and support them through that. There is a lot of awareness that they are taking a significant um, leap into independence. So things like, as I mentioned, um, the lifestyle nutrition program that we run at the NCC, um, that that covers things like, you know, nice skills. How do you cut a carrot? How do you boil an egg? Um, survival skills in a way for, for the modern um, and young athlete. Um, we, we don't shy away from the fact that we, you know, we can't expect them to be, um, be cooking up a, a seafood marinara um, <laughs> you know, as, as their training um, recovery meal. So, yeah, we try and support them through that. And you've already kind of alluded to it throughout this chat that um, there are a number of different diets and, and the influences of whether it be social media or something like Netflix with a program like The Game Changers. Um, there's obviously so much information around different diets, whether it be keto or vego or vegan. Mm. Um, 
what's your take on on different diets in relation to performance and I guess what are some of the challenges that athletes may face if they prefer to take a I guess a preference towards one of those diets um the impact on performance can be spoken about generally um, and then also individually. So if an athlete came to me and wanted to try something um, different, whether it be a fad diet um, or, or a different approach to their nutrition, it's about looking at what, what's the outcome or the objective that they're trying to achieve. So um, if they say that, for example, on the back of Game Changers, they want to go vegan um, I'd probably help them try and understand why they might like to be a vegan athlete. Um, there's nothing wrong with being a vegan athlete. It does take a certain level of organisation and preparation to do well. Um, but it's looking at what are they trying to achieve, what are the outcomes, and is that the right path um, for them to take to achieve those outcomes. And then even if they do want to continue down that path, um, it's all about helping them explore it in a way that's safe. Um, for both their well-being as well as their performance, I think it's important to keep those two um, in in a line of sight together, um, and not just focus on performance and forget about the athlete's well-being. And then within that as well, you've got um, specifics between needs for for a male versus a female, and you work across different programs where you're working with um, adolescent guys coming through the system versus our elite w- women who are going to a World yeah. Cup soon. Um, how do you de- or what is the differences between say a male elite cricketer mm-hmm. versus a female elite cricketer when it comes to nutrition is there a difference yeah there, there, absolutely there's a difference um the the volume of food you've got to cater for is very different from the male program to the female program um but quite naturally and, and biologically there is a difference between male and females and that does have an impact on their nutrition on their physiology on performance so it's taking into account some of those factors um, unfortunately, we still have um, uh, a long way to go in order to get the, the level of research that we need behind female-specific um, uh, performance measures, physiology. Uh, we're still looking at a lot of um, you know, injury research in males and trying to ex- extrapolate those findings into um, uh, you know, the, um, our approach, I guess, for females. Um, without sort of talking outside my um, my lane, I know that's a, a bugbear for a lot of different disciplines, not just nutrition. Um, so that's an area that we're trying to work on um, and, and try and influence. Um, but there are distinct differences between um, elite male and female cricketers um, that are underpinned, yeah, by biology. Um, and then also just males and females and, and their approach to nutrition is quite different. I think um, having worked over the, the male program in the last 12 months, um, our, our men's team, they play more cricket and they play um, the third format, which is, is obviously red ball cricket. So we don't have that in our female program um, as much. So that plays into the what their year might look like and what their performance demands are like. And you've already touched on it earlier, body composition, mm. um, and quite often that means skin folds. And for a lot of athletes yep. it's a bit of an anxiety point because yeah. it's it's a pinch test ultimately if you, if you don't already know what it is. And um, it, it's a it's a measure of, of uh, I guess it's a easy measure to do how much fat you have on your body and, and whether there's differences across your training and everything. Is there... I guess an approach that has changed over the years when it comes to something like composition, is there new measures coming in or um, I, I guess how do you help a female athlete through that? Because obviously it's, as you mentioned, girls tend to have a different idea around food and 
what's going to help them perform, but as well also look good as well. Um, How do you manage all of those expectations while still having to have a measure that that you can fall back on and, and track progress? I think for the athlete, it's it's again coming back to um, having that individualised approach. So um, skin folds are a very blunt tool um, and they're, they're a very blunt just number um, and it's easy to get caught up on that number and I think it's important to, to keep it in context. Um, so for the individual, it's looking at what are my needs and what are those outcomes and objectives that I'm trying to achieve. Um, and for, from a from our perspective in cricket, we look at skin folds in conjunction with lean mass um, or lean mass index. So it's a, um, a better way to, I guess, add that context to what's otherwise a, quite a blunt number. Um, when we report on those, um, those numbers to athletes and also other support staff that are relevant to um, athletic performance, uh, it's, it's, again, looking at the environment uh, that they're in and the different influences that may be had on their nutrition um, is it in season, for example, versus out of season? Um, and also holding uh, you know, front of mind that females just generally hold more body fat than our male athletes. So they are different and they should be. I feel like cricket too has many different body shapes and types, unlike yeah. a netball or even an AFL within the, the men's program. Um, like you've got someone like a, a Grace Harris, for instance, who's a, a power hitter, but yeah. Rach Haynes, a totally different body shape and, and build yeah. does the same role. How do you, I guess, as a nutritionist, you said an individualised approach, but how is it or when do you feel like you've achieved that you've been able to maximise a, a player's body shape and type and like their complete capabilities of, of what they're able to do? Um, probably a number of different ways. L- largely it's that's driven by the athlete. You know, they feel like – I know the – Players I work with will often hear me ask them, how do they feel like they're moving? How do they feel like they're performing? Um, and that's got to be a big part of, of the individual targets that we may set um, together with the athlete. So there's definitely an element of leanness. Um, but generally speaking, when you're lean, um, you, you're quite often your power to weight ratio is higher, you're stronger, you're moving well. You're, you're faster, um, et cetera. So that often plays out into performance. It's very hard to link body composition measures directly to performance outcomes in cricket. Um, but certainly, I mean, we, it's such a different sport, cricket, um, and you know very well that um, it can change on a dime um, and you never really know what you're up for in a match. And that's quite difficult to manage your nutrition requirements around it. So it's about being adaptable, um, and it's about holding that in your mind when you, you set your objectives and your individual targets for body composition. So how do you go about getting a team or, or getting an individual prepared um, for a game such as fueling? Like you said, things can change dramatically in cricket. You can go out, face the first ball, get out for a duck, and dramatically your, uh, I guess, estimated workload changes. But then yep. likewise too, you might be a bowler and you may not – bowl until the second innings which is after lunchtime or you're expected to bowl first ball and then last three hours in the Mm. field Mm. how do you go about preparing for that really unknown beginning and an end of the match options is is probably the easiest way to explain that so um, a lot of the players will have fairly consistent um, meals and and probably very consistent there are some players that are very superstitious about what their, their first <laughs> meal of the day will be on a match day regardless of what they're playing um, so there's sort of I guess a bit of a template 
um, to bookend uh, match days, but what they may consume during a match, um, as long as they've got options, and there usually always is, particularly in Australia, in terms of we have um, catering at, at meal breaks, we also have snack catering throughout the day, um, and then you layer that with the education prior um, and the ongoing education, constantly tweaking their individual plans um, to recognise what may be an option um, depending on what the scenario is for them. So I find, um, particularly working with female athletes, they're very uh, conscientious, they're always willing to learn and they're always willing to adapt. So um, that's by no means a chore with female athletes. It's it, I find that in this environment in cricket they do really well um, with knowing their individual needs and adapting to the environment that they're in. So for a, a home series or even, I guess, domestic cricket, yeah. how much influence does the team dietitians or, or yourself have over the catering and, and what goes into in and around a match? Um, luckily, a fair bit. So we work really closely with um, our amazing ops and event staff that help uh, get all of our catering off the ground. So um, at each major stadium that we might play out, um, well in advance of any tournaments and series there'll be catering guidelines that go to the venues um, there'll be a lot of back and forth with the venues on um, on menu drafts um, and it's been a process that's been tweaked over the years there's certainly um, stadium by stadium meal favorites um, there's a lot of tradition in some of the foods um, and we've been we've been able to blend that with performance nutrition over the years because some of those traditional foods haven't always been the best match day um, nutrition um, so that starts uh, well in advance of a series and then once we're on the ground um, depending on whether or not there is a dietitian um, present um, which there sometimes is and sometimes there isn't um, we then also have a little bit of influence and guidance um, on match days as to what players eat um, but largely they know what their needs are and, and they meet them with the variety of, of catering that's available to them. And how do you go about instructing an athlete around recovery? Because we play tournaments like the WBBL, which is a lot of games in a row, sometimes back-to-back days. WNCL, our domestic one-day tournament's been very similar. And then yep. you go into a World Cup where mm. it's really jam-packed. How important is recovery and what uh, what uh, part does nutrition play w- within that role? Um, nutrition is probably one of the biggest pillars um, to recovery. It's um, it's it needs to be timely. So within a couple of hours of the match finishing, you'd, you'd love a player to be able to have um, a recovery meal that consists of their their protein requirements, their carbohydrate requirements, some fibre to help fill them up, and then also their their electrolyte replacement and hydration, particularly being a summer sport. Um, that that generally is achievable. Um, it's then once they're on the road. Um, perhaps moving to another venue, that's where it becomes quite a challenge and, and players will hear me talk to them about emergency snacks and having those non-perishable foods that are available, available to them at all times, either in their kit bag, um, in their backpacks. Um, we look ahead or, or I certainly tend to look ahead at the schedule and, and identify times that may be challenging in terms of getting a good meal um, working with our team manager who's amazing at helping to facilitate good food options. So if we're on the road, for example, um, last week we we drove from um, uh, Sydney down to Canberra with the women's team to start their their tri series campaign, um, and we were able to facilitate um, uh, an esky on the bus so players could bring their own food with them so they didn't have to rely on stopping at a um, you know a, a 
regional New South Wales bakery along the way. Um, I know a few players did stop there and had um, some very special treats. But but we do try and facilitate good options as much as possible. But it is a challenge, particularly through, as you said, BBL and WBBL periods where, where it's just go, go, go. And cricket's quite a unique sport, unlike some other sports where a lot of the tours that are overseas are to subcontinent regions. And yeah. while the World Cup is here in Australia, it's a it's quite a luxury for the Australian team to be actually in a series at home. How do how do you prepare players to go over to the subcontinent? Something that's it's it's an assault to the senses straight away when you when you're over there. And the food is completely uncontrollable and you're staying at hotels and you're not able to prepare your own. How does an athlete balance that while also, um, I guess, still enjoying the culture and and while also having to to be there and do a job and play well? Yep. Um, It's challenging. Um, So we're very fortunate to stay in in great hotels um, that that generally speaking have really good catering facilities. Uh, But there's a lot of relationship building with – people on the ground so again those catering guidelines I referenced earlier that's something that would be liaised with um, the host venues in advance and you try and influence as much as possible from afar and then on the ground there's lots of procedures and protocols that we follow to ensure food safety um, personal hygiene Um, we'll always uh, depart before departing we'll have an education session with with athletes and staff around um, some of the the high risk types of foods or um, uh, personal hygiene considerations to make Um, and then um, it's controlling the controllables once you're there Um, you can't control everything particularly in places like India you've got to be adaptable come prepared Um, players will travel with a lot of their own snacks from home coffee is a big one as well (laughs) Um, it's hard to get a good coffee in India Um, but we're pretty lucky we do tend to go to uh, the subcontinent uh, fairly often across all of our programs so you learn from experience Um, so we're getting a lot better um, at minimizing the 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 risk of of ill health in places like that and within that too there's also the the changes of climate as Mm. well you go from uh, i guess a a really balmy melbourne game day to then going to the subcontinent where it's humidity of 90 plus percent um you mentioned hydration before what protocol i guess changes amongst that and and how do athletes and how do different athletes cope because some athletes get Mm. hit the heat more than others others yep um the, the protocols don't change so much from australia to to anywhere else in the world um it i guess it's just more the diligence with which you implement your, your own hydration and heat management strategies um we have evolved um to incorporate things like we've got a, a heat management policy now um a heat stress risk index that whilst it's not adapted for overseas yet we do use it here in australia for our environmental conditions and that helps guide strategies to be implemented at certain times in the game. Um, those individuals that are that are higher risk um, of heat stress, um, they've got individual plans that are worked out with the doctor, the dietitian and all support staff are across it. So it's anything from as simple as rehydrating with one and a half times the fluids that you've lost after a match to using things like cooling fests and cooling collars and having a very um, uh, specific and individualised approach to hydration and heat management. We've touched on the World Cup a, a couple of times throughout this podcast. What is the difference for having something like the World Cup at home for these athletes, mm-hmm. um, particularly when, it, like you said, it's on home soil and 
um, there's going to be a lot more attention on them, but then also they're still having to go through their own routine. So as a nutritionist, Mm. how are you facilitating what they do from now we're in the middle of a tri-series to um, finishing the, the World Cup at the MCG? Yeah, um, look, just trying to keep it simple. Uh, you go, go back to what you know and what, you work, what works for you. Um, the home advantage from a nutrition perspective is that it's easier to implement things that are familiar to you um, and to keep in your routine. Uh, when you're in places overseas, that familiarity isn't necessarily there and that routine's harder to keep. So that's, that's a if you can free up that headspace um, to, to keep things simple and, and in routine from a nutrition perspective, it allows that energy and brain power to focus on playing cricket um, and performing well in, in the cricket arena. Do those routines change when the girls have a night game versus a, a morning game and, and how do they plan for, for those sorts of needs as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, they're pretty adaptable, but we do try and really facilitate good choices and, and um, make things as easy as possible for them. So, for example, you know, if a match is meant to finish at uh, 10 p.m. Um, and, and we're late back to the hotel and they might have an early start the following morning, it might be that we'll ensure that it's a takeaway dinner option uh, post-match as opposed to a uh, sit down and eat it there. It facilitates getting out of the, the venue quicker um, home to bed to start recovery and, and sleep a lot quicker. Um, so it's about yeah for planning and then also being adaptable that following morning. It might be you know changing a session so they get a little bit of a longer sleep in, for example. So yeah, adaptability is a big one. And is it who instructs around the I guess the sleep and everything is the whole sports science faculty? Does it seem to be that everyone's kind of very much so merged and um, everyone's kind of I guess it like you mentioned before about not necessarily staying in your own lane but Mm. it's kind of a a fully integrated approach particularly for a team going through a really high performance space yeah um we're really lucky we have a really amazing um uh, sports science sports medicine team and everyone obviously has their their individual speciality um but no one hesitates to throw up an idea that might be um, something that's going to optimise a process that we've already got um, or is an area that we haven't necessarily looked at. Um, exceptionally collaborative and, and we bounce off our, our coaching staff really well also. Um, we're, as I said, we're, we're really lucky. We've got a great great group of, um, of support staff in general. So. And lastly, I, I guess you work with a number of young athletes and um, there may be some listening to this podcast. Mm-hmm. What would be some advice that you'd give them to help them, I guess, achieve their best um, with nutrition helping them along the way? Um, my advice would be to be confident um, in your own individual requirements and, and be confident that you're implementing what's best for you. Don't necessarily worry about the person beside you what they're eating and and what they look like um spend time focusing on on yourself and what you need to perform at your best um, and be confident that you've got the the support around you to be able to lean on them to help you figure that out as well awesome well thank you so much eliza for for joining me thanks holly Thanks for choosing to tune in. I hope you got something out of that discussion with Eliza. It's not often you get the insight into some of the resources and people our elite teams rely on. If you like this episode, feel free to share it amongst your friends, leave a review or flick me a message on social media. I love hearing all of your feedback. Next week, we have our final T20 World Cup episode and this woman needs no introduction. The world's number one T20 bowler, Megan Shute, will be joining us to discuss all things mindset, preparation and performance in our next hack episode. I'll see you then.